welcome everybody. I'll, um, I'll take a little time here just to reintroduce everybody to the series and um, talk a little bit about today's topic before I get rolling. Um, as always, the information for the Lunchtime Learning Series is at the website fyi.uwex.edu slash financial series. And when you come to that page, you'll see um, each of the the uh, monthly calls and briefs that we've had over the last couple of years. Um, so today's call, we're going to talk about student loans and student loan debt and um, various issues related to that. Um, last month, we talked about um, financial issues for military families. So those materials are, are up on the website, including the brief and the um, audio file, the um, MP3 archive, so you could listen to the last week's call. I'm sorry, last month's call, as well as some other follow-up information from that call. That call is a little different than our usual format, and we had some guest speakers come in. Uh, and I'm grateful to them for that, and hope if you missed that call, you, you get a chance to, to tune into that MP3 file and, and listen to that to that recording. Um, today's call will also be recorded, and in the next um, probably a week or so, we'll get the MP3 file for today's call posted as well. So all those things are available on the website. Um, most importantly for today is the issue brief, which is a PDF document called Financing Higher Education. You can click on the link from from the financial um, series website to um, to find that link. It's about a five-page um, PDF file, um, and I'm essentially going to talk through that over the next 20 or 25 minutes, and then um, we'll pause and uh, hope to get your thoughts, your insights, and your questions. Um, the student loan lending. This sort of is a market that's newer to me. It's not an area I've studied extensively in the past, and I really appreciated being able to work on this brief because it helped me get up to speed on a lot of these issues. Um, many of you may actually have students who so have uh, you know, college-age uh, children of your own, or yourself might, might still be dealing with student loans. So you may have some first-hand experiences you want to share as well. Um, but I thought this was an important topic to get out um, for a number of reasons. One is this is a time of year when when uh, families are starting to think about what their plans are going to be if they have a student who's contemplating college or going back to school. Um, but also because there's been a lot of media and press attention to this issue of student loans. And so, um, you know, there is actually quite a bit of research on student loans from sociology, from education, from economics. And there's, there's uh, no shortage of uh, actual evidence that we can look at and talk about uh, that might inform how we think about these kinds of issues. So... Um, hopefully this is um, the start of a conversation, but um, hopefully they can also give you some, some insights from the research that helps you in, in your work as you think about these topics. So let me pause for a moment and ask if anybody has any questions before I proceed. This is Barb Heens, and I have a question I'd like to see addressed at some point. Is, um, is there any help for students who are overly in debt with student loans. Great, and I hopefully will talk a little bit about what I know in that regard and also what some new options might be in the coming year. All right, and I, you know, as, uh, as we go along, if people have specific questions, they can always interrupt me or we can, we can discuss them more at the end as well. Um, anyway, thanks everybody for, for tuning in for the November installment on the Lunchtime Learning Series. We're going to take today, um, focus today on the issue of financing higher education. And um, I'm not sure that this is a, a topic that directly relates to how you will go out and do education with consumers, but it um, probably informs the work that you might do when you're working at least with um, older high school or college age um, students as well as adults returning to school. Um, I know many of you who do counseling or coaching sometimes look at credit reports and see student loan debt in there. Um, but first and foremost, I think this is a big issue because it just keeps coming up. It's in the media almost daily. Um, it's a topic of conversation that we seem to be having with our colleagues, our friends, with you know families and communities that the issue of student loan debt is one that um, has people a little rattled. I think in part because in 2008, we saw sort of the, the bubble burst in the housing market, and we saw how that had ramifications for the rest of the economy through the mortgage market. And there's been some concern that, you know, could student loans be another 
issue like mortgages were um, four or five years ago. Um, I don't think they are, and I'll talk about why that is. Um, but that doesn't mean that this is an important issue and that, that the attention that's being focused on on the issue of, of debt and, and how we finance education is, is one that probably does deserve uh, more attention, and uh, hopefully we can begin to understand these issues a little bit more. Um, so I'm going to start just by <coughs> describing um, what in economics I talk about is human capital. And, you know, essentially, if, if you were going to start a small business, you would uh, very likely want to look for some some debt, some some loan to help start up your business because you've got to buy, you know, the equipment or the machines or whatever it is it's going to take for you to get that business running so you can start generating income. And in economics, we think about the same thing with people. We call it human capital. And so you've got to invest in the machine, which is your cognitive ability, your, uh, your, your higher education, getting the skills and the knowledge you need to become the kind of employee that can garner higher and higher and higher wages. And, you know, it's, it's a, sort of a natural state of the way the economy works, that if people want to try to harness future income streams today, they can borrow against those future income streams. And that essentially is, is the underpinning of the student loan market, that on average people will take out a student loan, they'll get education that allows them to earn more money, and that earning more money, a portion of that will go back to pay back the loan. Um, we've had lots of history in the United States with student loans. As anybody remembers the 80s, 70s, and 80s, and uh, even in the 90s of um, issues of students who were not able to repay their debt, or you know, sort of these egregious cases of people taking out loans to finance some lavish lifestyle without ever actually going to school, um, and then getting out of those loans with with various uh, legal and other maneuvers. And as a result, there's been a a pretty harsh crackdown in, in the 90s and 2000s in regard to how student loans are treated. And you know, today a student loan is a loan that is essentially bankruptcy remote and um, pretty difficult to get out of. So it has some unique features to it. Um, you know, unlike other kinds of debt that that people may have. You know, it's not like a house where you have a mortgage and the collateral is the property. There's really the only collateral here is is your ability to repay based on your income. And, you know, first for some people that becomes a problem and, and you know, those are the kinds of issues we have to think about. But fundamentally, the role of student loans in an economy is, is a positive development. It allows people to forward that future income to the present and use it to invest in themselves, in human capital. And if they make good investments in that human capital, so if they buy the right machines, they, they invest in the right kind of knowledge, um, it's going to result in more income over their whole lifetime. And so, you know, four or five years of investment in education might result in 20 or 30 or 40 years of higher earnings powers, and, you know, that that can be a very, very positive uh, return on investment, so to speak. Um, and we see that. We see that play out in um, in the data. If you look at people who have a college degree, they earn more than people who have a two-year degree, and they earn more than people who have just a high school degree, and on average. And we also see that uh, people with a four-year college degree are much less likely to lose their job. So not only is there a higher level of earnings attainment in any given year, there's also a less likelihood of losing a job. So it reduces the risk in the labor market as well as the returns in the labor market. These are all... Um, you know, very positive economic signals that, that getting an additional education, getting higher education, actually can pay off. And so when we see people seeking higher education or uh, aspiring to a college degree, um, it's based on some rational perception of the, the returns that might exist when I go to school, when I get this education. Um, so, you know, from, from an economic standpoint, on average, this is, this is a good investment in um, you know, the existence of student loans facilitates people to, to make this investment in themselves and then to garner that higher income over their life course. One of the reasons why, so everything I've said so far is pretty rosy. It says this is a good market and we should, we should be happy that it exists. Um, but what's happened, particularly since the um, mid-2000s and especially since the recession started, is a, a lot more people have begun to think about um, getting more labor market skills, getting more... Um, 
human capital that they can then hopefully either avoid unemployment or uh, avoid further unemployment or even get higher wages in the future. Um, so more people are, are looking at schooling options, and more people than ever are borrowing to go to school. Um, so we've about doubled um, from 2002 to 2012 the number of people who took out a student loan. Now, there's a, a few reasons for that. One is um, in the mid-2000s, if you were a student um, of any age, but especially if you were a student who um, either owned a home or had parents who owned a home, it was really easy to borrow against that home. So a lot of people who were returning to school in the before 2008 could go to school based on home equity. It wasn't a student loan. It was a, you know, my house went up $50,000 in value, so I took out a $25,000 home equity loan, and that was my what I used to finance my education. Um, so that was, you know, again, probably a, a low-cost and reasonable way for people to do that at that time. But starting in 2008, there wasn't that home equity. House prices dropped, and there really was no alternative but a student loan. Maybe a credit card would be about the only other option. So there weren't a lot of other student, a lot of other options. Um, and as the recession hit, people started to realize, you know, it probably would be good to have more skills to be back in the in the education sector again, so I can start to build that human capital. So we had both an increase in demand and a limitation in terms of the alternative credit resources that might be out there. And we've seen just a real increase, a, a dramatic increase in the use of student loan debt, um, both the rate of students who use students uh, or who use student loans has gone up as well as the number of students overall um, who use student loans has gone up. So the amount of debt that we've seen per borrower has, rel has been relatively steady, but because we have so many more borrowers in the system, the total amount of student debt in the United States has reached record levels. It's, um, you know, some of the biggest growth year over year that we see in any form of credit in the economy right now is in the student loan sector. So um, student lending has gotten big, and it's gotten big fast, and that has garnered a lot of attention in the media, and partly why we see um, you know more and more stories about student loan debt. And, and some of this um, talk about is this a bubble? Is this bubble going to burst? Is this going to um, be just like the mortgage crisis? Now, what often accompanies these reports of how big student loan debt is getting in the aggregate are a couple of stories of individuals, an individual here or there who, um, you know, sort of was, is the hapless student who, who sort of ended up with this huge loan, doesn't know what they're doing, and, and they, you know, are working as a painter or something and can't possibly pay off this huge loan. And, I mean, certainly there are stories that are true of people who, um, you know, they got in, they spent a lot of money on a degree that doesn't necessarily have a, a, a job market payoff, or it does have a job market payoff, but it's pretty rare that you get to be one of those people that gets that payoff. So, you know, not to pick on any particular major, but, you know, something like literature or art or something like that, where one in a hundred people may become very successful because they pursue that particular art and they become, you know, famous or are sought after, and so they can be paid very, very well. Um, but many don't. They end up not even working in maybe their desired field. Um, so it's a you know an uneven payoff, and those who who aren't lucky to to hit it rich, um, you know, may struggle to pay off that debt. Um, you know, there there are certainly examples of of people who are in you know so-called high-paying majors who don't have good outcomes, and there are also people who um, were in low-paying majors and end up very successful. So you can't overly generalize about oh, it's just those art history majors or it's those business school students. Um, but, you know, there are some students for whom um, the schooling doesn't pay off as much as they thought. Um, but when we really look at the data, um, the cases where people have these big loans that we see in the newspaper are oftentimes less than 1% of the borrowers. So the data most recently looked at was less than 1 in 100 borrowers have over $100,000 in debt. And if you look at those cases, you drill down, there's usually the students who financed all four years of their undergraduate degree plus two or more years of graduate school. So it's at least six years of education that they finance, plus oftentimes living costs and some other things. So, um, you know, it sounds alarming until you dig a little bit deeper and you realize those cases are pretty rare and that those cases oftentimes are sort of anomalies. They're not a typical, you know, four-year student at a, at a public university. Um, what we do show in, in the brief in Table 1 is the actual amount of debt that students do incur. 
Um, so both the percentage of students who borrow at all um, and then the average amount of debt that they take on. Um, and then, importantly, what percentage of them actually ever graduate with a bachelor's degree. Because the, the bachelor's degree is where you get that really big bump in income and earnings power that makes it much more likely that you'd be able to pay off the loan. Um, so you can see from, from Table 1 that um, if we first just focus on the public four-year university students, so these are students who enrolled um, in 2004 at a public four-year institution. Um, of those, about two-thirds, 61%, borrowed at all. And on average, they took out a, a little under $12,000 in debt. So over the course of the four years, they incurred about $12,000 in debt. Um, certainly not nothing. I mean, it's, it's the, the price of, a, of a maybe a used car or a low-priced car. It's, uh, you know, for the typical graduate of a four-year degree in Wisconsin right now, they will walk out with a thirty-five or $40,000 salary on average. So, you know, this could be a quarter of their, their income. It's, it's, again, it's not negligible, but it's certainly not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you remember that the loan payments in this are much less than that, so usually pretty manageable. Um, and then importantly, um, you know, two-thirds or 62% or so actually do graduate um, with a bachelor's degree within um, six years after uh, first enrolling, um, and then an even larger share would get their bachelor's degree further down the line. So um, that's an important thing to, rec to remember. Which, which percent of people who start their uh, enroll in their degree actually finish it? Because it's the, it's the enrolling that incurs the debt. It's the graduating that incurs the income boost. And um, if we see uh, people who enroll and take on debt and don't graduate, they're the ones that we're most worried about. It's not graduating, not, gra not graduating on time that results in, you know, more borrowing and you don't get that payback in terms of earnings or you don't get that payback in terms of earnings as soon as you might if you graduated in a, in a faster pace. Um, so, you know, the, the general story among public four years is some debt for some people, but certainly not not overwhelmingly alarming. Um, if we look at private enrolled uh, students who enrolled in private nonprofit four-year schools, um, a slightly higher portion of them borrow, about 68%. They borrow more, just under $17,000 on average. Not surprising since private schools tend to cost more. Um, oftentimes they have more financial aid. Oftentimes they um, do attract a higher income uh, family that, that comes, but still on average students are borrowing more uh, more likely to borrow and borrowing more. Um, but uh, a greater share of them do graduate. So there is some, some trade-off there that, that they are actually able to get those labor market returns. And sometimes the returns on a on a private school um, education can be even higher than those on a four-year public school education. So it's a, sometimes an additional investment, just like if you were a factory owner and you wanted to spend more on a fancier, more efficient machine, you might make more money down the line. You might make that same case for some of those kinds of schools. It's not universal, but, you know, it's certainly, these are all, these numbers all seem like they're within the, the range of what we might expect um, or might find to be reasonable. But then when we look at the private for-profit four-year schools, so these are the, the schools you see advertised on TV. You see the billboards along the highway. You see them. They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere these days. Um, these are these are institutions that are oftentimes national or um you know, regional in scope, but um, very many of them are national as well. They actually do have branches. Um, much of the learning might be online, but some of it still is um, in a classroom with, with lecturers. Here we see that 89%, almost all, of the students in private for-profit for schools borrow, and they borrow more. They borrow just under $20,000, and only 15% graduate with the bachelor's within six years. And this is this is really the group, um, to me personally, that's concerning, that um, oftentimes we're attracted to the degree because, you know, oftentimes the, the students in these institutions are um, non-traditional. They're students who, who weren't a good fit for um, a public or private four-year program, um, either because of their age or, um, you know, other characteristics they have. Um, but the programs don't seem to be um, helping them persist and progress towards graduation. So they take on the debt. Most of them take on some debt. Um, they take on more debt when they take it on. And then getting the um, 
income boost down the line doesn't seem as likely if they're not actually graduating. Um, so that, that's a group, I think, where we do have some concerns, as, you know, from a policy perspective or from a, from a personal finance perspective about how good were these investments and are they actually going to get some payoff for the, for the people who go after them. Um, the last group I want to talk about is, is the very last column in, in Table 1, and these are the public two-year institutions. A lot of you, your offices sit in some of the public two-year institutions around Wisconsin. Um, these are obviously um, different kinds of degrees, different kinds of degree programs. Oftentimes, the goal of these programs is to um, matriculate people into a four-year program. Um, sometimes it's not to do that, but into a particular um, you know, professional path. Um, the costs are lower. I mean, certainly two years is less than four years, so the cost right there we know is lower, but also the cost per year can be lower, um, sometimes more flexibility in terms of how courses are, are done. Um, and oftentimes these are convenient, and so we get a high enrollment rate of students who are, you know, first in their generation to, to go to college at all or um, students from lower-income backgrounds, that kind of thing. Um, but here only 41% borrow, and the average amount borrowed is, is um, around 5500 or uh, just under $5,600. Um, and so this brings up some interesting issues that a lot of economists have looked at recently, which is whether this number isn't too low. If we really think that two-year universities offer students a gateway to, uh, to more income, whether it's from their two-year degree or by eventually matriculating into a four-year degree program, um, and only 41% are borrowing, and they're borrowing relatively little, um, what are they doing to try to get by? Well, the answer oftentimes for many of these students is they're working. And they tend to work more hours each successive year they're in school, which means there's only 24 hours in a day. And as they work more, they can't take as many classes or their their um, progress in each particular course or course of study deteriorates. They don't do as well in each course. They're more distracted. They don't get the courses done. They don't get the required courses done. Um, so as a result, this, this um, you know, it's funny because we sort of, we, we put people up on a pedestal and they work their way through school and what a, you know, honorable thing that is to do. The reality is that that may not be the smartest move, that actually borrowing more, working less, getting the degree done, and then getting that income bo boost faster may have been the best strategy. Um, and it's oftentimes hard for, for students to hear this. It's hard for parents to hear this. Um, and institutions don't always want to argue it because it sounds self-serving, but it's true. Um, each you know each year that a student is working you know part time and then that grows to be larger and larger share of their time, um, the odds of getting that two-year degree start to go down and down and down. And so, in fact, only about 13% of students six years after enrolling in a two-year public um, actually got a bachelor's degree. And I'm not sure what the right share should be. It shouldn't be 100%. But 13 seems pretty low, and it, it is um, worrisome that perhaps part of that is due to um, not taking out enough debt to have the flexibility to really get the work done, um, not the work done, the, the studies done, um, and get actually work less to be able to do that. Um, so this is, you know, it's an open question as to whether this is the right level of borrowing for this group. But I think I do think what this raises is that the issue isn't necessarily borrowing less that students are borrowing too much and we need to get them all to borrow less. We need to get students to borrow smarter, whatever that means for them, so that they're actually making a strategic choice about how much they're investing in their schooling, how much they're borrowing to do it, and what they think their return is going to be going on in the future. Um, and so this is, for many of you, this may be, uh, you know, an issue that you deal you, with. You see these students who are scraping by, trying not to, they're debt-averse, they're trying not to borrow anything. Um, and yet, for them, that may not be the best option because if they were to borrow at least some, they could scale back on the work and invest more of their time in their studies. Um, so the next thing is, is just to share is how Wisconsin's doing. So there are there is a lot of uh, information available on um, student loan debt from each institution, actually. So you can find online um, information about average loan amounts, the percent of students with loans. Um, and even default rates by institution. Um, so there's a link in the um, the blue underlined websites or, or links, and you can see some of these um, data there. There are some other links in the in the, the 
brief as well. You can follow to try to find data. But, you know, in general, Wisconsin looks pretty much like the rest of the country. We're, we're borrowing, you know, pretty similar to the average and, um, you know, generally, um, you know, there's no, there's no, um, smoking gun to suggest that somehow Wisconsin is a, is a hotbed of problems regarding student loans. We're pretty average, pretty typical. The fault rates in Wisconsin are actually below the national average. Um, Wisconsin tends to be pretty good at credit in general, so this isn't too surprising, but, you know, at least two-thirds of the level of the national default rate is in Wisconsin. So the, um, you know, students in Wisconsin tend to be doing pretty well. Um, their, their debt load is certainly not any higher than we see from, from national average and, and tend to be, um, you know, pretty much on, on par or maybe even doing a little bit better than we see, um, see nationally. Um, and again, there's the project on student debt, um, is a website, just projectonstudentdebt.org, that you can go to and look at Wisconsin, look at other states, and, and sort of see how we compare in various aspects of, of student lending. Um, so the, the, the next issue I want to talk about briefly is just um, how do parents or students make the choice about how much to borrow? And the truth is, is that I can't, I can't give anybody an answer on that. Um, a lot of it has to do with expectations about um, what is this degree going to do for you in terms of how much money you're going to make in the job market? Some of this has to do with um, how likely it is that, that you're going to graduate um, and graduate in a timely way, get done in four years or less versus, you know, five, six years. Because uh, every year you delay getting into the job market means more debt and um, one year less that you're going to get to benefit from the income boost from having that additional education. Um, there is a nice online tool um, developed by an economist here at Wisconsin. It's really focused on UW-Madison, but it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you can you can go in and, and do some some experimentation with it to look at different majors um, and different kinds of um, options that might exist for um, what you do in school and how you pay for school. So it, it collects a little bit of information about the student, um, and you can do it for yourself. You don't have to necessarily be a typical undergraduate. Um, it includes some calculations of lifetime earnings based on various majors that you might select. Um, looks at the cost of attending school, looks at various financial aid packages, and then essentially calculates a payback um, of getting a, a UW-Madison degree. Um, but, you know, really it's it's not that different than you'd see in, in other schools as well. And it can give you a sense of which majors give you the biggest return, which majors are, are more marginal, and, and, you know, it doesn't say that you shouldn't have those kinds of, you shouldn't go into that field or you shouldn't do that major, just to have some reasonable expectations about what that means, that certain majors aren't going to have the earning income, the earned income after graduation, and that might make paying off these debts um, a little more challenging. So there are other tools that exist. In fact, most schools are creating some form of, of payback calculator like this, um, in part because the Department of Education is encouraging that as a way to help inform students um, about their borrowing options and um, what the costs and benefits of, of getting schooling are. Um, so these are becoming more and more common, but this is a, a, a nice, easy-to-use one that you can play around with and, and look how different uh, majors return. Now, we have to be careful because we don't want to say, you know, if you do, for example, teaching or social work, you'll notice that the returns are pretty low, <laughs> sometimes negative, depending on how quickly you, you uh, get done with your degree. Um, but it, those are still important fields, and so we... We're saying that you should make all your decisions based on the money. Uh, you know, is this degree going to pay off or not? But rather, if you're going to go in certain directions, um, being aware of what the um, expected kinds of income potential are and what that might mean. Maybe it means borrowing less. Maybe it means trying to finish faster. Maybe it means other kinds of options that can that can help you both do the degree and the career that you want, but not put yourself in a financially insecure position. Um, last thing I want to talk about um, quickly is just the, the federal loan um, market today because there's been a lot of press about this. It's consistently in the uh, the policy debate because we keep having to uh, renew the rules on some of the various student loan legislation that's out there. Um, it became a big campaign topic this year in the election um, so as President Obama was campaigning. Um, and making sure that students knew what, what role he had in that. And um, similarly, the Romney campaign talked a lot about what their plans would be for student loans. 
Um, so, you know, this this whole issue of, of uh, student loans, federal student loans, got quite politicized. Um, but the, the student loan market is is pretty simple, and so I want to talk a little bit about the the federal student loan market and then just briefly on the, the private market as well. So for those of you who were in the midst of this with your own kids, you can probably school me. Uh, my kids are still too young to be thinking about borrowing. Uh, but there's there's a lot of nuances to this, and so I'm, I'm not going to give it full justice, but I think it's just to give a sense of, of how these things work. Uh, first of all, the, the form that matters is the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. Um, what's important for the FAFSA for a lot of families is they never fill it out. Um, and I think we've talked on these calls before about attempts to integrate FAFSA into things like tax time. So, um, you know, like two-thirds of the the items on the FAFSA comes right from the federal income tax form. So if you were to integrate uh, filing taxes and getting the FAFSA done, that's one way to to increase the ability of parents and students to, to find financial aid and to find federally subsidized loans. Um, so that's one strategy that folks have talked about is how do we make sure that families fill out the FAFSA. Something like, um, I've seen different numbers, but uh, you know, a quarter to a third of eligible families fail to even fill out the FAFSA. Um, for various reasons. So that's a, that is a, a key document, the FAFSA document, um, that oftentimes both parents and students need help understanding both the importance of filling it out and then how to fill it out because it can be somewhat convoluted and confusing as you go through it. Um, but once you once you get through the FAFSA process and, and then you're sort of in the system, and for most universities this is the, the sort of universal form that they require to be evaluated for whatever financial aid packages that they can provide you, including scholarships and other kinds of tools. Um, but once you're in that system, there's essentially, um, well, there's three real forms of lending and then an additional form of lending, which is not so much for the student, but for the parent. Um, and so the first of these is called the Perkins Loan. And if you follow the policy debate, you've heard talk about the Perkins Loan. And um, The Perkins Loans are actually um, not made by individual lenders, but they're, they're federal loans that are distributed by colleges and universities. The Federal uh, Department of Education watches universities closely to look at the default rate. If the default rate starts to creep up, they start to get into some oversight situation as it gets, you know, 10% default rate or higher. Um, and so those default rates are watched very closely. The Perkins loans are based on financial lead, need, so it's the, the uh, parents' expected contribution um, if they're still in the FAFSA, and then the, the students' expected contribution, and then what's sort of left over. Um, is what potentially can be covered by a Perkins loan. It has a, um, a relatively low interest rate, about 5% um, interest rate right now. It's a fixed rate. Um, it does vary, and you can look on the Department of Education um, website where they actually show the interest rates for different types of loans um, that are out there and for what date of this, um, the disbursement is. So basically the interest rate set on when that First amount of the interest of the loan itself is made. Um, so, you know, if, if you have loans made every semester, then there might be a different interest rate, um, depending on whether you the bridge. Usually, the interest rates change around July 1st of any given year, um, and sometimes they they continue over several years. Um, so, it, it sort of depends what the interest rate environment is. Um, you know, the current interest rates have been in place for for a couple of years in a row. Um, but that does vary over time. Um, the next type of loan is the Stafford loan, and there are two forms of the Stafford loan, the subsidized and the unsubsidized. So the subsidized is uh, a low interest rate. This is the one that was in the in the news because the Congress set the interest rate at 3.5% or 3.4% um, over the summer. And um, it'll be there for, until at least next June um, at that same level. It is financial aid-based, so it's the, the need of the of the student is determined by the FAFSA form. Um, what's important about the subsidized nature of this kind of Stafford loan is that while the student's in school, um, the federal government will pay the interest. So the um, you know the interest doesn't uh, get piled into the, the amount owed. And um, you know each student uh, can borrow up to a maximum amount, and they can only borrow it to to um, to get a bachelor's. It's not available for any graduate work. Um, but this is sort of the core piece of federal student aid packages, oftentimes with the subsidized Stafford loans. 
Um, interestingly, um, some students don't maximize their use of these loans, even though they could borrow more. Um, and, you know, maybe that's debt aversion. Maybe it's um, lack of information. It's hard to know why, but oftentimes students don't, don't fully use what's available. Um, the next kind of Stafford loan is the unsubsidized Stafford. Um, this is um, available for um, students at higher income levels, so with, with, uh, with higher contribution expectations of parents and students. Um, it's a higher interest rate. It's a 6.8% interest rate, so um, about double what the unsubsidized loan is. And um, importantly, the interest that occurs during school um, actually is accruing. Um, so a student has the option, I think, to, to pay the interest while they're in school um, or to let it accrue and, and pay it off later. Um, there is a limit to how much you can borrow, in, but it is available for graduate study as well. Um, and then the final type of loan, which isn't as much a student loan, it's a parent loan. It's called the PLUS loan. Um, so it's available so that students, um, as well as uh, the parents of students and then graduate students, if, if they're a graduate student, um, can borrow over and above the unsubsidized Stafford limit. So it allows uh, larger loans, essentially. By cobbling together several types of loans, it allows students to borrow more or their parents to, to borrow more. These are, uh, you know, much more like a standard um, a standard consumer loan where there's a credit track and there's, an, you know, an interest rate that, that approaches the, the uh, market rate. Um, but they are federally, sub, well, they're federally backed, so that helps. Um, make sure that the market exists and that the, the process for application is um, uh, pretty transparent and, and um, you know, uh, closely watched by, by the Department of Education and other entities. Um, uh, I, I'm not talking much here about private loans, but what happens for students um, oftentimes is that they get some patchwork of loans, some combination of subsidized, unsubsidized federal loans, and then they start to tap into the private loan market. Um, and those private loans are, um, it, it, it's, uh, it is a regulated market, uh, but it's, you know, the rates and the terms and the conditions can, can be widely varying. Um, it is definitely a place where um, students have to pay attention. Um, some universities have um, uh, financial aid packages that include private loans. Some just sort of say, you know, and there's options to seek out private loans. Um, the number of lenders who are active in the private loan market has, um, changed over time. We've, we've seen many lenders actually exit the market um, in recent years, so it's um, it's a it's a hard market for me to say much about because it's it's hard to generalize on. Um, some people have excellent experiences working with private market uh, student lenders, and some have horrible experiences, and um, it really kind of varies. Um, but uh, I'll suffice it to say, it's not a market I know that much about, but it, <laughs> it is what fills in the gaps. Um, when students have maxed out their, their federal option. Um, last thing I want to talk about is repayment, because um, I know sometimes that's the issue that you face, is somebody comes in and they say, what do I do? I, you know, I was the art history major, or I was whatever the major was, I have a lot of debt, and I, and I can't figure out how to deal with it. Um, so as I said before, student loans uh, follow you. You can't get rid of them in bankruptcy. They, they, um, they're not something that you can easily get discharged. Um, federal student loans can actually result in garnishment of tax refunds, of Social Security payments. We've seen stories lately of people who just started collecting Social Security and then they were garnished because of uh, their uh, outstanding student loans, federal student loans. Um, private student loans can result in judgments, uh, legal judgments. So it's, um, uh, it's a serious form of debt to be in delinquency on and it will follow you. Um, there are options, though. So somebody early on asked about, well, what happens if you can't pay? And so it, it sort of depends on whether it's a temporary or permanent situation. But temporary situations like um, going back to school, military, um, economic hardship, which you have to prove, but it's not, you know, sort of the things you typically expect or unemployment, any of those kinds of things, can result in a deferment, which essentially means that, um, you know, sort of a, a form of putting the loan on hold for a while. Um, it's temporary. Um, typically for some period of time until the borrower can can get back on their feet again. Um, the, on the, the subsidized loans, at least the interest doesn't build up. Um, it's just sort of it's like putting the loan on pause, essentially. Um, in a forbearance, actually, the, the interest does continue to accrue. So in the unsubsidized loans, it's more like a forbearance than a than a um, than a um, 
the ferment. Um, and you have to be current when you apply for these things. So if somebody's already behind, um, they have to get their loan back in good standing before they can um, get into those kinds of, of loans. Um, there are some cases, though, when loans can be canceled. And I, was, I actually didn't know this. It's, um, it's unusual. There are some cases, though, where loans can be canceled, and that's particularly if the institution that the borrower went to so if you go to a fly-by-night college that now is now out of business, it is possible to get your student loan canceled. Um, also, if the loan itself was was done in a fraudulent way. Um, and then there's also the issue of disability. Um, I mean, death of the borrower is one thing, but also disability. So somebody who has a permanent disability could potentially um, have a loan canceled in certain circumstances. It's rare, but um, I was always under the impression that student loans were something that always chased you forever. There are actually are some some ways to get out of these loans in certain certain circumstances. Um, so the newest news in the student loan market is, is a series of new payment options that are being brought in um, over the next year. One has been around for a few years called income-based repayment, or IBR, as it's termed frequently. Um, and this is where a borrower essentially pays 15% of their income, um, and they'll do that for 25 years. Uh, as long as they make their payments for 25 years, paying 15% of their income, if they still owe anything, it's forgiven. Um, so this income-based repayment plan has um, become a serious option for people who are in um, a situation where they have a high debt and, and just don't have the income to pay it off. So it's essentially 15% of their discretionary income that would go towards that repayment plan. Um, later this year, and we don't know all the details on how this is going to work yet, is a new pay-as-you-earn program, um, which will um, be available just for certain eligible borrowers. And so the sort of how that's going to be determined is, is um, playing out right now. Um, but essentially, this would be 10% of discretionary income, so even better than the IBR. And um, the balance would be forgiven after 20 years of consecutive payments, so even better terms in the IBR. Um, and again, this is trying to get at the issue of how do we deal with students who took on debt and may not get the income that they expected. So this is it's one way for that to work. This is only applicable for federal loans. So I know that's been a big disappointment for people with private loans. They thought this was for them, and it's only for the for the federal loans. Um, there are some loan forgiveness programs, too, especially for students who are, who are in public service. So we oftentimes hear about people who are in teaching or social work. Um, students who actually work for a government agency, a state agency, a nonprofit, um, or a school um, can get their federal student loans forgiven if they pay for 10 years, um, 10 years consistently. Um, so that's an option I know that um, I have a lot of graduate students who are, <laughs> who are interested in that option um, because they could you know, work in a state institution and potentially have their, their loans forgiven after 10 years. Um, another option that works for some folks is um, some students with, with debt or some ex-students with debt is the uh, consolidation of loans. So taking several loans and making a single loan, potentially with a lower monthly payment, um, potentially into a lower interest rate, depending on, on how the consolidation works. Um, consolidations are really easy to execute, um, if particularly it's a federal loan. It's not like a, a mortgage refinance. It's actually a very um, uh, simple process, and sometimes having a single payment makes it a lot easier for the borrower. Um, the borrower can't be um, in trouble. They can't be in default, usually. But um, there are some options to, um, you know, get your loan cleaned up by making nine months of payments in a row and then essentially having that um, negative uh, on their credit record removed. Um, there are some other uh, options available for, for private lenders, but uh, often private lenders don't have nearly the, the flexibility that some of these, these federal um, loans have. And so that's, again, why... One of the key things we always think about is how can we make sure that people maximize the, their use of the federal loans because not only because of the terms up front, but also because of the, the flexibility on the back end in terms of the servicing. Um, I'll stop there and, and let people comment or ask questions or add, add to this in, in whatever they want, um, in ways they want. But I, I will just note that the, the brief has um, about a half a page of links. Um, so things like the uh, FAFSA website, the um, the student aid website, um, some um, links to the Know Before You Owe, which is an effort of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, to, to learn about that system, and then data 
um, the National Student Loan Data System. And then the research studies, the papers all have links here too for that were, you know, that this brief was based on. So hopefully all those resources are just a click away or a, a couple of clicks away through, through that. So um, with that, I'll stop and, and let people comment or ask questions. You talked about the income-based repayment um, being at 15%. Is, um, is that per loan? Um, for the, for, for federal, so you sort of take the federal loans, um, and essentially, you know, oftentimes this would involve consolidation as well. Um, so the federal loans would be 15%. The payments on the federal loans in total would be 15% of discretionary income. And that's only the federal loan? Correct. Okay, thank you. Other questions or comments or experiences? I think for families that have not had someone in school, that FAFSA is overwhelming. I mean, it's, it's just asking, you know, if you're not good at keeping track of records, finding those numbers is huge. And so then they go to the private market just because they can't get their act together, but they need all that anyway, but then the banker's helping them. <laughs> so the FAFSA itself becomes a hurdle. Oh, huge. And and families, adults, really don't want to have to admit how poorly they're managing their own money um, to their kids. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to maybe think about how we can, What? why would a family, why is it to their advantage to, to do that? Interesting. It really brings up a lot of these, you know, the the relationship issues start to really come out. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Other experiences that people have with either on the repayment side or um, this issue of underborrowing, does that resonate with people or does that sound like you're still too worried about overborrowing? I have a question. This is Beth in Green Lake. I have a question kind of on a different avenue, though. Um, I was told, you know, a few times that um, student loans are not a bad thing to have. It's more of a, it's a form of good debt. Um, but is there an amount of time that we should be looking at repaying those? Or um, I'm thinking of myself. I'm, you know, a few years out of college and I want to have them paid off by the time I'm 30 and that's just my rule, that's my personal goal, should we encourage people to, be <laughs> to, to pay it off or not pay it off? Or, right. Yeah. When we're looking um, at, like, having a house payment and a car payment and all these other things that might actually, I mean, car payments aren't good debt, but the house might be, right. how do we balance it out? So if you have any ideas, that would be great. So I'm... um. So there's probably two answers I could give. So the you know the classic financial economist would be, well, if the interest rate's low, you should just let it ride. You should just pay off the minimum. And you know if the interest rate's low, if it's the lowest interest rate you have, then just let it go. I mean, it's certainly cheaper than borrowing on a credit card or or anything else. You know, you're better to have that cash in your pocket um, or in the bank or you know, just something valuable for you than than paying off this really cheap loan. Um, so that would be sort of the economist. Standpoint. If you're paying a three and a half interest, three point four percent interest rate, certainly don't pay it off fast because that's, that's just cheap money. So you should let it go. I <laughs> when I when we were my wife and she had a probably like a two point eight percent interest rate on her loan. Um, we had these you know I don't know seventy eight dollar a month checks that we were having to write every month for this. Just kind of got annoyed by it, and we paid it off. <laughs> not, not doing what sort of the traditional financial economists would do, um, more because you know it was a relatively low balance, and we were paying these checks every month, and it was a pain. And all I just must have been before we figured out how to do um, auto auto payment. Um, and you know, so we did we did pay it off, um, which is not what you know what the sort of classic the theoretical response ought to be. Um, so I think it does vary for people on, you know, whether it's I don't want to juggle this plus another loan 
Um, I want to get this paid off before I'm a certain age. I want to do it before I buy a house. I don't, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons that people have for that. But I think getting people to focus on the interest rate is one strategy because if you are, let's say you have several loans and you're going to pay off one and not another, well, you know, pay off the highest interest rate. Or pay off the one with the least flexible repayment terms. You know, if you have one private and one public, um, you know, pay, pay off the private. So those kinds of strategies, I think, are are helpful to help to get people to think about. But I, I always get nervous whenever I see, uh, you know, a publication, a website, a speaker who says, this is what you must do. This is the right thing to do. Because by and large, you'll find somebody who's got a situation where it's not. And so you just have to be careful. Other comments or questions? All right, well, I appreciate everybody's um, attention today. Um, the next call in this series um, is actually going to be in um, January, I believe, because we're going to We've decided that it's too hectic <laughs> with the December holiday, um, so we'll be um, essentially taking a little a little hiatus here for uh, for the month of December. Um, coming back together in January, it's going to be a week earlier than the normal time, um, so it's going to be January 14th. Um, and I'm going to uh, present something totally new, um, which is a concept I've been working around. Uh, uh, to get people to check their credit reports. And so I'm calling it 2266-1010 as a teaser um, for what's going to be. But essentially, it's going to be a, uh, a set of tools that you can use to help people in your community to check their credit reports three times a year on February 2nd, June 6th, and um, October 10th, so playing on those double-digit uh, dates. Um, you can pull your credit report once a year for free from each of the credit bureaus. There's three credit bureaus. If we get people in this sort of cycle, this habit, they can... Make sure they check their credit reports on a regular basis, find any errors, um, and get a better sense of where they're at, and it doesn't cost them anything. So we'll talk about this concept for a strategy and some of the tools um, in the toolbox that we can contemplate. So with that, um, I thank everybody for your time today. I know it's a busy week. Um, and have a great holiday.